the psyche is social, it's relational. And, um, and that there are these different levels of communication going on, some conscious and some kind of less conscious. And, and really it, it's language that we're trying to get to. We're trying to have clearer and clearer communication. And at our deepest, our deepest level of communication is archetype. So every word that we've ever spoken has been crafted over centuries by people. We're not, we're not, and we're not kind of saying these words and these sounds by accident. Each word is actually attached to an object, you know, in the in material reality. And we've kind of assembled really as long as society has been around or groups have been around we've assembled stories together to make meaning and so fairy tales are actually really really old they're not they're not kind of invented by Disney or even the Grimm brothers that they're, they're ancient and and they've been told in in every group in every society in every land and a lot of them are the same ones so you know Cinderella is repeated everywhere Rumpelstiltskin's repeated everywhere Chicken licking is pretty repeated everywhere. Kind of stories that we wouldn't expect um, are just turn up. And so it's really kind of my interest in these sort of ancient, almost psychologies, you know, people trying to make sense and meaning of the world and how we all relate to each other. And so just when I'm really listening to someone, just kind of what does what am I associating to what storyline does this feel a bit like um is is part of why I'm so interested in fairy tales hi I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the locked up living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life we also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop I'm David Jones so join us every Wednesday morning Six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today you're going to hear from Dr Libby Nugent, who's a clinical psychologist and group work practitioner of group psychoanalysis. She specialises in sexual health, complex trauma and group psychology. She has a long-standing interest in the need to connect with creative ways of thinking deeply about ourselves, each other, our society and the many identities we live. And Libby, I really enjoy following you on Twitter because I think you post such interesting um, and very different kinds of posts on there. So it's always really nice to see what you've been tweeting about. So welcome. Really pleased to have you on. Thank you for having me. I was um, delighted to receive the invitation. Actually, I thought I thought this would be a really um, interesting conversation. Hi, Libby. Great to meet you. So I'm David, by the way. Hello. Um, so, Libby, why did you become a, a clinical psychologist? What was it that, that appealed to you about this role? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, it feels like a long time ago now, but I, I think really the answer that was true then and is true now is, is the people. I was a bit, I kind of got my degree in psychology and physiology and was a bit sort of lost and then um, but knew I kind of wanted to work in mental health, I think somehow, but was more working in social services and um, met two clinical psychologists in that work, um, Andrew Hyder and Andrew Vigin, who I think are brilliant psychologists, actually. 
Um, and they just, conversations with them just really inspired me and opened this door into this whole new way of seeing the world and thinking about things. And I just, I just wanted to join that group. I wanted to be a, a part of that somehow. And um, was really lucky that I was sort of invited in really. I mean, obviously you have to do a bit of fighting too to get into clinical psychology, but yeah, that, that was the appeal of it. Um, and just the way people see the world and how they want to contribute to it. So what, what was the kind of thing they said to you that uh, yeah, spurred your interest particularly? Well, I think I think they were really trying to hold the complexity of, of people's situations. I was working in a day services in Cardiff, um, which was this closed um, environment where people with severe and enduring mental health problems could come. But, you know, it's very much tea and toast kind of care. <laughs> and they would have occasionally have MDT meetings in the space. And it was a really beautiful service. I look back now, I think I had no business in that job, actually. I think it was probably... I was a bit too young and naive for it. And there's um, maybe other people in the space that should have had it. But I got the job. And um, and the psychologists, they would just, they would just be really interested in interactions, into kind of family stories, providing context around service users' experience, and just a really different way of understanding what was going on. Um, that just felt um, just like a breath of fresh air, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So mm. I mean, I, I think I was similarly inspired by the first psychologist I worked with. There was a chap called uh, David David Kennard, who, mm. who who also completed his group analysis training while I was uh, working with him. Yeah, it's that kind of sibling experience, isn't it? Where you just think, when I grow up, I want to be like you. It's that it's got that kind of feel to it. Um, I probably still feel like that a little bit about them. <laughs> but there's there's something about kind of somebody that isn't so far away that you think, oh, this is impossible. But at the same time, you know, you've got a heck of a lot of legwork to be doing to kind of get in the same kind of game as them. Well, I'm sure there's a book to be written about this, but uh, of course the <laughs> questions that buzzing around in my mind is why why then? psychology rather than psychiatry oh well, well, you don't, it's... sorry you don't have to answer that because I it's, it's just a question that's come to mind it seems to me to be deeply interesting and to me it suggests something about the distance something about distance from uh, psychiatry to real lived experience at times well, I, I suppose there's something about different paths into these sorts of conversations, aren't there? So I think, you know, I mean, I, I started off actually studying medicine, believe it or not, and then switched to psychology. Um, I do tend to take the long routes into things. Um, and I think there was there's something very um, there's something very tribally different about psychiatr psychiatrists and psychologists. Um, you know, and psychiatrists, I think the way in is very much the body and the physical, isn't it, in terms of that that part of things. And and psychologists tend to be more interested in in the relational, in the social, um, in the in that part of things. And of course, I think we need both. But um, I, yeah, why 
one appeals to one person and not the other I don't know I'm not quite sure why I switched really either but um I don't know if I'd have carried on in medicine if I'd have done psychiatry um you know it's, it's got Thank slide, you. <laughs> sliding doors sorry yes that, that's a bit of a sideways question um <laughs> So, but you're now currently here training in group analysis, aren't you? Mm. So, so why did you take that turn and why is it of particular interest for you? Well, I think my own experience of trying to understand myself, it's always lent itself to groups. Um, I'm, I'm from a big family. I'm number four child out of seven children. Um, and I was... You know, I grew up in a Mormon community, which is a sort of smaller community, obviously, in in society. Um, and I think I've and then left left that community when I was in my teenage years. But I I think I've just been really um, conscious of how much groups and the group experience has shaped my own well being. And so, from a very sort of personal level, um, wanting to understand myself a bit more and and groups are kind of make sense to me from that. Um, but I didn't go straight to group analysis. I don't think I was really kind of um, aware of anything to do with unconscious processes at all, actually. I think I was just more interested in, in systems and structures. And so my, my initial curiosities were very much around systemic psychology and narrative psychologies. Um, and you know, my thesis was on interprofessional collaboration in, in CAMS. And so the idea of kind of different tribes and how they kind of connect to each other over risk. Um, but I think the unconscious part is just a natural kind of growing up. It's like, oh, actually, you do need a bit more than just kind of conscious understanding of what's going on. We do need to think about why when we do everything right there's still problems and we still can't affect change and the stuckness remains you know what what keeps happening that we need to kind of explore mm, no, that's very interesting isn't it because i think uh, as, as time has gone on there's a much wider acceptance of the the mysteries of consciousness and unconsciousness even if it's not uh, yeah phrased in analytic terms yeah so do you think there's enough emphasis upon treating people in working in groups for mental health practitioners or we, do we just assume that everyone can generalise their skills? I think there is an, an assumption that the skills just transfer over. Um, I, I think there might be a good amount of emphasis on groups in terms of people's desires to run them and their use in kind of service structures and things like that. I, I'm always curious to the idea that the theory and understanding of individual psychology and what we know about individual psychology, there's an idea that that just maps straight over <laughs> to a group experience. And, and some of it does, I think, really well, um, but a lot of it doesn't. And, and I think it's very easy to get into um, hot water and the only reason why I say that is I think, you know, groups, groups can be really quite dangerous places. And most people have had experience of a group being a kind of awful place, you know, whether it was a, a, a school classroom or a, I don't know, a gardening club or, or some kind of, um, I don't know, peer support place that they can be incredibly powerful, 
powerfully supportive, but they can be really, really damaging as well. And, and that's not because of individual psychology, typically, although we do like to imagine, you know, we've got these strong personalities that just come in and ruin everything. Um, often it, it's a bit more complicated than that, I think. Um, and so I, I, I suppose I'm a champion of this idea of, of, yes, do group work, but please know a little bit more about group work. Um, so, so it can be done safely, carefully, well. In the same way you we were talking about the kind of whether people gravitate towards psychiatry or psychology at the start, I'm wondering if there's a question about whether people gravitate towards group work or individual work and you know whether people some people might find themselves running groups because the service the service requires it when maybe they don't have enough confidence in their own position in the group to be able to to take that role comfortably. Mm, yeah I think that's a really good question I mean I do think one way people try and run groups is to imagine it's a it's um their job is just lots of individual therapy (laughs) all in the same room together and of course that kind of is part of it you know it is about individual need being addressed and and strengthening Actually, groups are about strengthening individuality, ironically, you know, that 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 the better a kind of um, more able someone is to understand their own internal world and uniqueness, the more they contribute to a group and make a healthier group, a healthier society. But I think um, often people don't really harness the, the sort of sibling relationships in a group, you know, the, the lateral things that are kind of happening across the group it can be very much focused on each individual um, group member patient with the group facilitator and and you know of course that's going to ignite all sorts of um, sort of ideas about fairness and envy and and lots of kind of um, maybe not, not so conscious patterns as well about about what you do to get attention you know whether you deserve care or not over somebody else um and and that's really tricky you know we've got quite ancient stories about sibling rivalry and some of it's it's pretty ugly um although we also have lots of stories about sibling support as well and and how necessary it is to survival so how how do we harness the support and not um not just people make people enact envy Thank you. I mean, you've already given some great um, ideas about what kind of happens or what may happen in groups. But what do you think are the important points of learning that you've taken from the training in relation to what groups do? Um, I mean, I'm still very much in the training, so I'm about five years in. It feels a bit never ending, but... um... So, so I, I don't know if I will be saying this when I'm on the other side of it, but currently I think the, the learning that um, I'm most kind of, um, so I'm still very much in the training. Um, so I don't know if I'll still kind of be thinking this at the end of it, but the learning that I'm, I'm most taking at the moment is really the need for planning. So really careful planning. I guess um, group analytically, you call that dynamic administration. 
but really having a sense of, you know, what, what is the actual task of this group? Um, how do you protect the space so it can happen? You know, fighting for a room, making sure there's enough chairs for people, making sure there really is space for people to be able to arrive comfortably, leave comfortably, you know, navigating how long the room's, the, you know, the group's going to last for, is there parking outside? Is there easy access? But it's all stuff that, you know, in a, in a dyad, in a one-to-one, you don't have to give that much attention to. Like, you really don't. You, you can probably make do with, I mean, it's not great, is it? But just any old room changing each week. You can probably, you know, you can just, you can walk someone to the space. But if there's five, six, seven, eight people in a group, you can't just walk each person to the room. You can't, I mean... You know, you're going to get people getting lost. You're going to get confusion. There'll be different physical needs. People will be arriving in different emotional states. Um, so this idea of just, I guess the, the metaphor is always preparing the nursery, which is a bit patronising on one, one kind of sign. But, you know, there is a big difference between having one child and eight children. You have to really plan very, very carefully. Um, and you also have to plan very carefully about, taking care of yourself as well, how much it actually takes to look after that number of people in a space rather than um, you can do it a bit more on the hoof, I think, um, you know, in, in a one-to-one situation. Um, but I guess when you, the more people in the room, the less you know what's going to come up. So you have to kind of really plan in for chaos a bit more because it will arrive. It's just, you don't know when. Thank you. So it sounds if you're talking about thoughtfulness from the very beginning and paying attention to the setting and being prepared to be shaken oneself and coping with that. Yeah, yeah, all of that. Great. So do you think this training is useful even if you're not offering treatment predominantly in groups yeah I do actually I I think I think there's something about it that really has um forced me to really notice how I prepare spaces um how I navigate beginnings and endings how other people navigate them um it's it really encourages this slowing down and examining um, you know, e- even if even if kind of my work from now on would only ever be kind of one to one, I think there's always kind of more people under the couch, aren't there? There's always more people in the room than than we imagine, and so just having that insight and awareness of of actually we are constantly kind of carrying our groups around with us, and we and that we need to make space for that. Um, yeah, I think it's invaluable, actually. Do you think it helps you with thinking about uh, colleagues and management? I think, well, it does. And I think the other thing that working in groups makes you realise is actually um, the humanity of each other. You know, there's always so, so much going on behind closed doors or different parts of the self that you didn't know Mm -hmm. so you can be in a group therapy with someone for years and then you know someone new joins the group and all of a sudden you're hearing these brand new stories 
these brand new insights. And it's like, oh gosh, there's, there's always so much more to people. And particularly in work, you know, we, we kind of, um, people come with these very strong personas often, their kind of professional identity. And it's so easy to imagine that that's the whole person. It's so easy to imagine that this thing that we thought they would never possibly think or never be possibly open to understanding or connect with actually, you know, really might be there somewhere. Um, so it really softens our ability to relate as well to, to people, kind of to colleagues and to, and to really help with leadership in that as well, actually. Mm. Kind of seeing people as more whole. Yeah, good point. Yeah, as you were talking, I was just thinking about the, you know, that, that idea of as a you know qualified professional, uh, as a psychologist, there's an expectation that you will take leadership roles um, as you progress throughout your careers, mm. if if that's in the NHS or whatever or other organisation, with perhaps less emphasis on how you prepare for that. And as you were talking, I was thinking, even if your client work is predominantly not in groups all that group work process thinking um, is probably very useful in terms of thinking about the organisation, which is a mass of groups, isn't it? It's not it's not just individuals that you're trying to relate with or think about, but how the, the organisation is composed of, of many different groups. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, mean, I think that something really interesting happens when people progress into leadership roles that I don't think psychology training often prepares people for and certainly um one-to-one working doesn't prepare people for which is that um you know the more um authority and power you hold in in a system the more visible you are to everybody and the less visible everybody is to you and so you just become this sort of um figure that people will project things onto and of course, you know, in one-to-one or two-to-one or three-to-one or four-to-one even, that's fairly controllable. You can kind of have conversations around it. You can navigate it, but you get to a certain number and you really are just at the kind of mercy of the projections. And if you don't know um, that part of group process, that actually there's something very impersonal going on. It's very archetypal you know, that people aren't seeing you as a human being and nor can they, or maybe should they, um, you know, you're becoming some kind of God or monster to, to a lot of people or a parent figure and whatever that means. Um, then if, if you really might not know how to keep yourself safe in it, you might not know how to find care or resource. I think I find it fascinating that kind of leaders in psychology often have so little kind of protected time for reflection, so little protected time for self-care um, and, and are so open to, to kind of um, other people's kind of gaze. Um, and so it is quite, it's quite frightening. It, it's quite frightening. And you can see why lots of people end up sick or having to leave. Um, because I think, I think it's one area that really group, group understanding is, is sort of necessary, actually. As, as you were talking, I was also thinking about introverts and extroverts. Mm. And I think lots of psychologists, um, 
psychotherapists might be introverts and enjoy the one-to-one the intimacy of a one-to-one interaction but it's quite different when you're then um plunged into a group situation where as you say you're automatically much more visible and that might be more uncomfortable for people who are introverts than people who are extroverts perhaps yeah I I can see that and it becomes and and again you know well maybe not again but introverts extroverts either can be great leaders it doesn't it's not it's not kind of um necessary to be one or the other but I think that does add an extra weight for some people, you know, that that it's so uncomfortable and unfamiliar. But then you could say for the extrovert, you know, that maybe they're used to kind of getting this um, thank you almost or, or something that's much more kind of um, intimate in terms of of being seen. And that's that's what they enjoy. And actually, if they're also getting a lot of the negative projections that will happen, which is inevitable, I mean, that can be devastating. So it, it's, uh, I don't think there's any winners in this particularly. No. So what's that like then for service users, you know, the clients that when they're, you know, sometimes group treatment is the only treatment. People, If you're, if you're a, if you're in a prison, for instance, the vast mm. majority of what you're going to be offered as psychological treatment is going to be delivered in a in a group. So what's that like? Presumably some people do fare better than others in group situations. Yeah, well, like, I think people aren't always ready for a group situation. Um, you know, that it does require a certain amount of positive experience of groups. And and some people really haven't had that, you know, that the the groups have been very dangerous, terrifying places where they've had to come out fighting, um, where shame is just very, very readily available. And so it, it is important to be able to be in a group and be able to imagine at least, you know, one or two faces in there are going to be on your side or one or two faces are not going to be appalled or disgusted or devastated by your asking for something needing something mentioning something um and so yeah enforced groups is a bit tricky isn't it as a as a sort of as a way but those they can be really beautiful spaces as well so I guess you know it's complicated well, absolutely. I'm just thinking about the, you know, the service I worked in for 17 years in a high secure prison. We, um, all of the men who were referred to the project had to have been prevented from doing any other treatment in in prison. And, and usually that was because they they weren't willing to go to groups or they'd acted out aggressively in groups. And so they'd been excluded from, from treatments. And we offered a combination of individual therapy and group therapy. And actually the attendance rate at individual therapy was around 95% from the point from, from the start of being in treatment, which is very, very high, even though they could, they could vote with their feet and not turn up. But group attendance often took a lot longer to get to. So I would say the first sort of 12 months people really quite in opposition to being in in groups even though group work started at the same time as their individual therapy and Mm. the first year was very much a lot of hostility with a group of eight men all probably who would have identified as being loners saying why would I want to sit in a group with any of these people 
Um, but by year three of treatments, the men would be talking about feeling um, a real sense of love and care and saying, this is the first time in my life I've ever felt loved. And so you could see this transformation and the group process was definitely an important part of that. And I think the fact that the groups were not structured groups either. So there wasn't um, there wasn't a, an agenda of what had to be spoken about, but that experience of just being and existing in a room with seven other men um, had this really powerful transformative um, role that it played for the men, I think, when their histories were of being socially marginalised, being the, mm-hmm. the ones at school that were seen as being stupid or to be excluded, you know, bullied and were often excluded. So the group had a very powerful part to play in their treatment, I would say. And David, you've probably seen that in the therapeutic communities that you've worked in. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Although my views on what constituted good uh, therapy changed somewhat when I went to work at Grendon. So I came to believe over a period of time that one had to be um, aware that um, people always needed allies in their group. And I think you were hinting at that earlier on, Libby. And, And they also needed a sense of support from the facilitator. Um, and so being a kind of opaque um, kind of interpreter of events, I didn't feel was mm. particularly effective in that uh, setting. You had to be much more accessible and transparent, really. Yeah, that makes lots of sense to me, David. I, I think I think it, it really is quite a kind of worldview shift for people to... Um, see groups as a place of support and I think that is really the role of the conductor although obviously what is support then becomes kind of a massive question doesn't it but and and what is you know rather than kind of um, interference or or kind of pushing a particular perspective onto someone um, I think as well in terms of structuring groups you know, groups that groups are extraordinary at being able to to get to shame and to care for people when they're being shamed. And, and you know, shame is a social phenomena, you know. So, of course, groups put it in. So it's groups that need to take it out. Um, but, you know, to kind of set a group up so that that can happen does need thinking about, you know, in terms of who's in the group. It's important that, like you say, there aren't any um, isolates, people that have these experiences that no one else in the group has had, um, you know, that that just will go into the group and feel very different. So we do need some kind of pairings kind of to be thought about or or, um, at least talked about if if it's not possible. Um, At the same time, there needs to be enough difference for new stories to get in, you know, that that. It can't just be that everybody uses the same coping strategies or everybody has the same worldview or so. So you need this sort of tension of sameness and difference to to really get this sort of um, caring matrix kind of ignited. And I think I think, David, were you talking about the, I suppose, the more traditional analytic view being that you kind of like intervene very sparsely and and may need to make interpretations. But actually, when you've got a population who are much more frightened and anxious about being in a group 
anyway, perhaps needing more active um, thinking through more active presence from the facilitator than than traditionally groups groups might run. Yeah, I mean, I started off working in the uh, NHS, and and that was predominantly the uh, style. What what you just uh, described, yeah. I was also, um, as, as we were talking, I suppose the other thing that we haven't spoken about is in groups, you might be running a group alongside another professional and that might be the best model for, in mm. order to meet the multiple, to make sure that if somebody's being scapegoated, there is someone who's able to be there as an ally and support them. Whilst the other person, you know, because you have people attend groups, don't you, being really quite provocative and mm-hmm. they can't be entirely um colluded with but you might want somebody to be able to hold the compassion for them whilst the other facilitator perhaps um supports the the people who are feeling quite affronted or offended upset by what the the person's had to say yeah i think i think there's a lot to be so to run a group you really do need to know the context of the group it's being run in so that makes sense um so you need to know the context it takes a group to run a group so the group in in group analysis you don't kind of think of systems as being closed you see them as being open and so there is this sort of um borderland area where there's sort of corridor conversations or attached kind of individual sessions or other groups going on and and the idea isn't you know that that you're very mindful of the boundaries but also that there's the crossing of a boundary so somebody taking some material that happened in the group to an individual session how does that get then get spoken about and can it be spoken about and how do you kind of link up the different places whilst being mindful of privacy and all, all the complexity that comes with it um but but it's it's really important to kind of yeah really know the context that a group sits in so that group members can be supported, in, including the group conductor, the group facilitator. Mm-hmm. And do we do enough thinking about group composition when we think about multidisciplinary teams, for instance, and when teams might be very well established with perhaps a very long standing member of the team who then leaves and is replaced and are we good enough at thinking through what that then means for that team of professionals who, if they're not functioning well together, might actually not make the best of decisions for the patients? Yeah, I think, I mean, gosh, I was just such, I sort of smiled when you were talking then, Naomi. I, I think these are really difficult kind of messy topics. Um, you know, how do we talk about that, that sort of feeling part of work? You know, the the losses that we may feel really personally actually when when someone we like or someone we didn't like kind of le- leaves the system and and you know how does how does the team navigate that and and I guess the question is well should they even you know why can't people just have private thoughts and let them be private and and there's an argument for that I think but one of the difficulties is if, if you're in a, if a team meeting and there's conversations happening, but you can't really kind of get to the group task of thinking about a patient situation because you're there just 
internally eye rolling every five seconds or you'll think because you're thinking well such and such a person would have never said that or thank god I'm not having to listen to that old stuff that was being said before and you're not really present in the conversation because you're so distracted by all these sort of feeling parts um you know it, it does then become a problem you know the these things that we don't want to be relevant really are and I guess that's the kind of unconscious material, isn't it? You know, mm. whether we like it or not, it kind of does get in the way. And and we're not just machines that can um, switch off to the personal. Yeah, I'm kind of wishing we, we'd had you on just to talk about groups today, because I think we could, could easily talk about this topic for much longer. But we also wanted to ask you something about the use of um, metaphors and storytelling, mm. because that's, I think, very present in your, um, your tweets, where you often reflect interesting, fantastical perspectives on human psychology. Why are you so interested in fairy tales? Um, well, to be honest, it is really, this is really connected to groups. It's not, it's not a separate topic. Um, on a personal level, why, am I, why do I like fairy tales? I just like them. I always have. Um, stories were a really important um, escape for me when I was little. Um, I was a big fan of Highton Library and <laughs> spent a lot of time there. Um, you know, the, so, so there's that. Um, but also from a kind of group level, in, in group analytic psychology, um, there's this idea that the psyche is social, it's relational, and, um, and that there are these different levels of communication going on, some conscious and some kind of less conscious. And, and really, it's, it's language that we're trying to get to. We're trying to have clearer and clearer communication. And at our deepest, our deepest level of communication is archetype. So every word that we've ever spoken has been crafted over centuries by people. We're not, we're not, and we're not kind of saying these words and these sounds by accident. E each word is actually attached to an object, you know, in the in material reality. And we've kind of assembled really as long as society has been around or groups have been around we've assembled stories together to make meaning and so fairy tales are actually really really old they're not they're not kind of invented by Disney or even the Grimm brothers that they're, they're ancient and and they've been told in in every group in every society in every land and a lot of them are the same ones so you know Cinderella is repeated everywhere Rumpelstiltskin is repeated everywhere chicken licking is pretty repeated everywhere kind of stories that we wouldn't expect um I just turn up and so it's really kind of my interest in these sort of ancient almost psychologies you know people trying to make sense and meaning of the world and how we all relate to each other and so just when I'm really listening to someone just kind of what does what am I associating to what storyline does this feel a bit like um is is part of why I'm so interested in fairy tales and do you have a particular favorite children's story or fairy tale I mean I'm pretty equal opportunities when it when it comes to fairy tales but I think growing up and um, this is probably going to give away a lot about myself but I loved um The Little Mermaid Mm -hmm. I was completely in love with um, the Disney version and Eric, the prince. 
And I just, I just really kind of um, understood this story about this girl from a big family with a kind of overprotective father who um, wanted to go to a different world, who wanted to kind of go and, and explore, and, and she does. But to do that, she tries to change her body and, um, and she loses her voice. She gives up her voice. And because she doesn't really um, understand pain and she's told in the exchange, you know, if, if, you, if you give your voice up, if you change your body, um, you're going to be in pain every day. But she doesn't really understand it because she's never really experienced it. So she said, oh, it'll be fine. <laughs> so she does it. And it's not fine, actually. It's really not fine. And then, you know, the Disney version is a happy ever after. But the Hans Christian Andersen version, and he kind of, you know, he took it from lots of different stories, but his version of it, you know, um, the prince does not, inform, does not fall in love with the little mermaid. He, he falls in love with the good girl from church <laughs> and goes off and, and marries her. And of, of course he would, because she can talk to him and she's actually being herself. Um, whereas the little mermaid is just this silent, very nice companion next to him who's pretending to be someone that she's not. And at the end of the Hans Christian Andersen story, she's given this opportunity. She said, well, if you get in touch with your anger and if you murder him and stand in his blood, it's really gory, you know, then, then you'll be okay. But if you don't, you're going to die. And even to the end, she chooses good girl. Even right to the end, she chooses good girl and she ends up foam and bubbles in the sea. And I'm like, oh my God, that's a cautionary tale. I know this woman, like I know her. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's huge. I think that's a, sorry, a great example of how stories can change or be changed. Mm. And uh, uh, this has provoked in me a memory. I'm a, I, I'm a member of a reading group. So we read books to each other and one of the books we read was the odyssey by homer mm. um and, and what i learned from that is that we don't know if there was anyone called homer really we just know there's a collection of stories and the stories were gathered together over the course of hundreds of years from numerous different storytellers from all over the Levant, that uh, part of uh, uh, Asia with, that we think of as being the Middle East, and uh, and and yet it's come to be thought of as you know, being Homer's Odyssey, and of course all of those individual stories get extracted and reproduced on the widescreen now in all kinds of hero stories, and with a slightly different slant to them. Mm, I think. I mean, there is that's. That's really powerful. I, I think there is a sort of a bit of a um, collusion around this idea that that um, certain people invent stories. You know that 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 they're attributable to one person, whereas actually, you know, stories are the group that they're, they're an oral tradition. And really, as culture, we're obsessed with them. If you think about, you know, Twitter and social media and and movies and Netflix, they people spend so much of their time reading stories, listening to stories, 
um, I mean, and, and creating them, I mean, and creating different endings. And all of this, all of this is such kind of live material, isn't it, to be understood? Absolutely. And do, do you think stories and metaphors share something in common with other art therapies like sound play and music? Mm. I mean, I think, I think music and I mean, that that's quite a kind of, um, it speaks to something very deep, doesn't it? It's sort of non-verbal way of relating to people. It's much more body. I, I think stories are, in some ways are kind of um, a bridge between the two. You know, that, that stories put language, verbal kind of words onto these sort of bodily experiences of music on of um yeah creation through sound play where it's kind of moving objects around so i i think that there are different ways of telling stories but I, I sort of think music is probably one of the deepest ways to kind of connect with people isn't it i, I imagine kind of creating musical sound happened before language yeah, you may be right. You may be right. We've um, we've um, yeah, we're trying to schedule a, a conversation with a sound play therapist, and we've had an art, mm. art therapist on, but not a music not a music therapist. It would be interesting to to hear from someone who's a music therapist. Lots of traumatized people don't didn't have idyllic childhoods where they were read stories as they were dropped off to sleep as they dropped off to sleep at night. What are the implications of using stories for people with traumatic or neglectful childhoods? Do you think? I think it, I think stories are really powerful and that they have to be used carefully. Um, so I I certainly do use stories. Um, I don't know if I ever would just read one I but I it's not that I would be against it I would just have to have a good think about it um I know having said that I run workshops and in those workshops I read stories but generally what I say to people in the reading the story part is um because they're, they're online normally is um you know this is the bit where I really you know if you need to, to kind of turn your screens off if you need to go make a cup of tea move your body around you know, just write shopping list, half listening, because I, I think it, you know, it can be really difficult actually to have a story read to you. Um, there is something very intimate about it. At, at the same time, you know, there's certain, I mean, there's certain stories that I've been able to um, connect with people over and have conversations around trauma that I just don't think would have happened otherwise. You know, um, there's a story of uh, the stone child. It's an Inuit kind of fairy tale. I don't know if you know it. Um, no. There's a Jungian analyst, Clarissa Pinkola Ristairs, who, who reads it. So, I mean, it's beautiful. And it's this story of a child who's abandoned by their parents and left in this village. And it's winter and it's cold. And uh, nobody will take the child in and the child is teased it's knocking on the doors it's not allowed it, and and it's kind of humiliated it's smelly it's it's really neglected by the community and it find the child finds this stone and it just loves the stone and it takes the stone everywhere with it and it clings onto the stone but the child starts fading faster and faster and eventually kind of 
it sort of cries and, and the last heat goes and it's going, all its heat is going into the stone. And um, just in the moment that the child's dying, the stone cracks open and this sort of magical little girl comes out and she's the perfect partner for this child. And she takes care of the child and she finds a home and feeds the child. And that story I've told quite a few times with people and we've used it quite, I mean, it's more than a few. It, it really resonates with a lot of people about their experience of neglect and rejection and humiliation, you know, that, that comes with it. And the hopelessness as well. It's like the story is a long story and it's really, like, it's really hopeless. It takes, and, and something in people often does have to die before anything loving and warm and new can come in. And, and there's different endings to the story. Sometimes they find a kind of a, a, a strange woman in, in her own room that kind of feeds them. And that can kind of be like, oh, is that you? Maybe like I'm a bit grandiose, but you know, um, but like, but the and the woman isn't the fairy by the way this fairy still comes but these these stories are a way of kind of opening into really really painful brutal experience without it having to be head-on in your face let's look at your trauma your pain and have a chat about it um but I wouldn't just drop it in casually I would say I Again, I suppose that sounds a little bit like the, you know, the art therapies that by using some something that's related, but not so, so in your face as a person's own history, it somehow makes it easier to, to take a, a look sideways um, that makes it possible to, to see it. Well, I think, and I think, but also I think for lots of people, you know, that, that working alongside with someone as opposed to face to face is just all that can be bad, really. And, and yeah, and it is very similar to art therapy. I guess it is a form of it in a way. Um, it is very similar. Um, and I, but I think it's really necessary for some people. Yeah. And something about making making adaptations in our approaches, isn't there? In mm. order to make them accessible, I think too easily we write off the patient as being. Um, unreachable or, or or not able to participate rather than thinking about what more we can do to make what we're offering palatable and something that can be engaged with I, I think it's really unusual to find someone that doesn't have a story that they like I mean it might not be you know it might be some kind of mafia mobster story or a, or a horror film or you know it, it won't necessarily be kind of little red riding hood or anything but that it most people have some kind of story that spoke to them. And my experience is that's often a way in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you you mentioned running fairy tale workshops. I believe you've also got a workshop coming up on formulation in the in the near future. Did you yeah. like to say something about what, what you're doing in that workshop? so it's so it yeah I do it's it's a kind of a, a newish pet project really um so it's a series of six workshops it's starting in January and it's it's a series of six workshops I ask people to come to all of them if they you know or at least commit to all of them even if they don't physically attend them and it's a way of introducing kind of 
different psychological ideas and, and also kind of depth of story. So each workshop um, will have a therapeutic modality used to explore a particular story. Um, so I'm just trying to, I think we do the Little Mermaid and Systemic Therapy. That's, so I'm running the series at the moment and, and um, there's the Little Mermaid and Systemic Therapy for that. And there's the film Get Out and Jungian Analysis. And we just, so it's a very brief description of the therapy and then a sort of deep dive into the story. And um, they're just really lovely spaces. They're really exciting. You don't need to be a psychologist to come to them. Um, just an interest in it really. Um, but but people seem to enjoy them. I know I do. And how do you choose your stories? Um, really, I pick ones that I like. I, I tend to I tend to pick a story and just try and um, examine it. And in that examination, often what comes up is like, oh, this feels quite like a um, CBT kind of thing. So Harry Potter's quite CBT and act is one way. Another way of holding it, it's very, very Jungian and individuation. Um, and you just and you just start to play with it and you see what comes out of it. And there's normally so much. Um, so it's quite an indulgent kind of uh, hobby I have. You can see as we're talking to you how much you like, you know, how much you love stories. Mm. And I suppose as you were talking, I was thinking that sounds like quite a nice way of, in, in, of being able to play more as you do your as you do your job. Mm. But equally, it sounds like fairy tales can be quite potent, and I'm wondering how you create safety in them. What you know, when you're working in a group via Zoom, how how do you manage to keep people feeling safe? Oh gosh, so I think I think this is the sort of group analytic training, really. So I I think I'm quite careful around the frame, and what I mean by that is, you know, we we start on time, we finish on time. I'm quite clear about. Um, the structure of the session as well so normally at the beginning I'll, I'll just introduce people to the space and I'll be saying well we're going to spend this many minutes on hellos this bit on kind of um, the story this bit on a presentation and the rest is discussion so there's no surprises with the frame for people um, I also try and encourage kind of cameras on obviously it's not always possible if people aren't well or wi-fi connection that kind of thing but but certainly just having a conversation around it, you know, inviting people to be like, look, who's in our matrix? This is important. Um, and then there's a sense of just, I guess, I always have an idea that anything could happen. So whilst I'm, I'm sort of holding this frame, I do try and keep an eye on the fact that anything could happen um, and try and speak as um, honestly and directly to things as I go. Um, yeah, so I guess that that's what I can do. And I also try and keep people to task, you know, in terms of, well, what are what are we reflecting on and are we staying with with the topic and the story? So it sounds like by paying enough attention to the structure that allows the flexibility within the process to then be able yeah. to go wherever the group needs to. And the final one in terms of thinking about fairy tales, I mean, I'd tweeted you at the weekend about the Daily Mail having published an article about how younger people think fairy tales are inappropriate and outdated. Now, that could just be the Daily Mail wanting to have a, an attack on the woke youth. Um, but I wondered you know, whether you had any thoughts on this. 
Um, I mean, I like multiple ideas about things. And so I, I think it's important to be skeptical of fairy tales and, and to be like, well, what messages are we sending people? Um, Jack Sipes speaks like hugely about this and, and powerfully about it, you know, that, that stories really shape our society. So we need to be very careful about what messages we're sending out. So um, I think, and, and in, you know, in the workshops I run often, that's a thread in it. It's one of the interpretations that we'll have for a story is like, this is really sexist, or this is incredibly racist or offensive, and, and, that, and that we need to hold that in mind. Um, at the same time, can we also hold in mind um, sort of, how can I put it, the, so, so a fairy tale might be kind of literal, a literal interpretation might make it something really quite bad. Um, but a symbolic interpretation might make it something really important. And, and can we hold both? Can things be literally false and symbolically true? Can, and, and, and if you can hold the tension of that, then, then I think we're into something very human and very exciting. I, I, I get very nervous when there can only be one truth. You know, there's one understanding of something. I, I think we're normally into trickster kind of territory there. Um, so I, I wasn't a huge fan of what the Daily <laughs> kind of wrote, um, though I get it. Um, I, I think I think we need more symbolic meaning in the world. To be honest, I think we need more metaphor. It, it's how we get to to theory of mind. It's how we get to empathy. Um, you know that that we just have these sort of multiple meanings to things. And if we imagine that that my thought is the only thought, or or my understanding is the only understanding and the right one, then gosh, we're in trouble. And it seems like it allows you to to be quite brave in some of the conversation topics that you that you handle as well. You know, just thinking about the themes of sexism and racism, for instance. Mm. Well, I think I think if if you can have a conversation where there is an ex <clears throat> there is an explicit kind of um, welcoming of contradiction. You know that there is there is a celebration of difference. It's not difference in, in physicality, difference in thinking style, difference in worldview, like that, that it, these things are really important. And can, can that be held? Then actually, it, it's, a, it's a lot easier to navigate. I mean, may, maybe, you know, I'm going to touch wood or get so superstitious or something, but I've, I've been really lucky in the spaces um, in that lots of complicated things have been talked about. But the culture has always been incredibly um, thoughtful and reflective and, and kind of um, good enough. Okay. Moving on to the third big area of your life, uh, Libby. You also have an interesting Twitter handle, Becoming Ethical. And you've been writing about becoming more mindful of privilege and working to be more inclusive. So how did you get onto that track? So the, the Twitter handle came from, there was, there was a book, um, it's a manual really, it was a narrative therapy one um, by Alan Jenkins called Becoming Ethical, um, which is about 
um, men who were perpetrators of domestic violence and group work with them and, and how they kind of went through this journey of becoming more conscious. And, and I just, and so kind of on a group work level, on a psychology level, that became, it was quite important to me for a certain point in kind of my professional life, kind of working in that way. Um, but also I think as a metaphor for how do we kind of make conscious these more shadowy parts of ourselves and hold ourselves to account um, and compassion, you know, not, not just, oh, I'm bad, the end, but how do we hold ourselves to account and with compassion and take responsibility for ourselves? I, I think, I mean, for me, that's kind of the point of therapy, lots of ways, <laughs> or certainly my own therapy. Um, and, and a part, I guess, of my worldview, maybe it's a bit spiritual too, about, about wanting to understand myself and my place in the world. So, I mean, gosh, it's, yeah, and also I just needed a Twitter handle name, you know, that's the sort of, on, on a really <laughs> kind of reductionist way. And I thought, oh, that sounds all right. And, and then after a while I was like, oh God, it's a bit, you know, something tricky in it. But um, anyway, so sets me up for something, I think. Thank you. And, and uh, finally, those of us who work in this field often hear very tragic stories. So how do you keep yourself healthy and nourished? And this is Naomi's rather corny punchline. What advice would you give to listeners for making sure their own fairy tale has a happy ending? Oh. I think I think really it's very easy to, as psychotherapists and psychologists, to over-identify with our client stories and with their material. I, I think I think that can be that can be your whole life. And there is something about understanding that you are the main protagonist in your own story. <laughs> and and that you might need to do something more than um, fight other people's dragons. Um, you might have your own you know, wicked stepmothers to deal with, your own kind of abandoned children to go and find and rescue. And, and that understanding that you are more than your work, even if your work is always sent stage centre, because it's not criticism of loving work. I mean, you know, it's a great thing, I think. But um, understanding you are more than your work is is sort of incredibly necessary incredibly necessary so I, I think boundaries around work and kind of limit setting I think also finding a way that that you know you don't have to always suffer for work we've got a bit of a kind of odd story around work at the moment that it, it it's it's only hard work that pays results no pain no gain that kind of thing as opposed to you know work can actually be incredibly nourishing um not always I mean you're being paid for a reason but like it it, it can be so I think there's something about expectations about supporting work and what's reasonable or not um and people getting their eye into that and then how do people have their own kind of happy ending to their fairy tale um I guess being able to have an ending 
um, which I think a lot of therapists can struggle with. <laughs> um, you know, because an ending is in the beginning of something else, isn't it? The stories roll on 